Hello, everyone, and welcome to Changing Reels, a bi-weekly podcast on underappreciated or overlooked movies with a focus on diversity in front of and behind the camera. For Changing Reels, I'm Andrew Hathaway. And I'm Courtney Small. Changing Reels is featured on Modern Superior, so please give those podcasts there some of the same love you show us. And you can also reach us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. We're also easy to find via a Twitter or Facebook search, so you can like us either on our Twitter page or leave us some notes on Facebook. Whether you love it or hate it, we want to hear from you. Best way, of course, would be to shoot us a message. We'll include links for email and otherwise. But also ratings on iTunes, good or bad, and feedback there would be appreciated. Finally, if you have suggestions or something that you want to hear, give us a shout. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this or past episodes, and we definitely take suggestions in mind when we craft our schedule. So, for Changing Reels, I'm doing well today, Courtney. How about yourself? Doing fairly well. We were talking a little bit before we started recording, and it's been a busy week at work, so I've been kind of drowning myself in mindless cinema, which is always fun. And I also had the pleasure of being on the podcast See You Next Wednesday recently to talk about Kong Skull Island. And for those who don't know, See You Next Wednesday is the flagship show from the Modern Superior website, which hosts our show as well. And that was a lot of fun. So shout out to those guys for having me on. It was a great conversation. And they also had a lot of nice things to say about our show as well. So that was encouraging. And I kind of like the tagline that you introduced last week, the AV Club Recommended. See you next yeah, Wednesday. Yeah, they were um, reviewed, I guess, maybe about a year ago or so by the AV Club's Podmask. And, you know, it's tough to even get noticed by Podmask because they're reviewing so many websites and so many highbrow podcasts and celebrity podcasts and stuff. So it's a testament to their work and their commitment. And it's also just a fun show. They use a single die to decide which of the hosts will see what films. So someone will see a big budget film, like for example, Kong Skull Island. And (laughs) the person who rolls the lowest has to see a B movie or a really horrible film like King Kong lives. So it's kind of fun, that whole dichotomy. And it's it's just a really nice laid back fun show. Well, I love Dungeons and Dragons and I love movies. So anything that adds dice roll and an element of unpredictability to what movie you watch I'm down with, so give them a listen. And before I get started today, I guess just a quick idea of how you felt about Kong Skull Island. I enjoyed it for the most part. I had some issues with the amount of characters in terms of like who gets more screen time in terms of like the storytelling. It's a fun film that you can kind of turn your brain off to and have a good time. But the more I started to think about certain elements of it, there are some flaws that kind of irked me a bit. But overall, it, it was a good time. I pretty much got what I wanted, just mindless fun. And that's what it offers. Now, one thing I'm curious about is that there's been this trend with a lot of studios recently to take indie comedy or dramedy directors and then hand them the keys to these franchises. And, of course, the director of Kong Skull Island is uh, Jordan Vogt-Roberts, he of the massive and impressive beard, who did the pretty good Kings of Summer from, I think, 2013. So how adept is he with the action? Because, like with Jurassic World, giving a dramedy director action keys can sometimes be a disaster. I still haven't seen Kings of Summer, so I can't even talk about his big leap but i will say that the action delivers exactly what you want and personally i think the film 
is far superior than Jurassic World. I really hated Jurassic World. That's almost damning with faint praise, but at the same time, <laughs> credit where it's due, especially if since we are measuring one big budget franchise against another helmed by a director previously known for indie dramedy rom-coms. When I was on the scene next Wednesday, I was saying in the three Jurassic World, Kong Skull Island, and the Garth Edwards Godzilla, I liked Godzilla more, but I need to revisit it. Kong, for me, would be like a solid second. Upon revisiting Godzilla, I might actually bump Kong up to number one because again the action is great and John C. Riley, man he is so good <laughs> and yes. like I I hate to I don't know I don't hate to say this but if by some weird stroke of luck if he was to get nominated for best supporting actor for this role I would not complain I know it's far-fetched because when you think of these blockbuster movies they don't really think about the acting in it but he is so good in it like he brings the right amount of humor heart to the film it's just a great performance by him and he's usually good as is so Riley is one of the most adept performers today and that wouldn't be too far out of the realm of possibility, especially since I don't think it's going to make Pirates of the Caribbean money, but Johnny Depp got nominated for an Oscar for his role as Captain Jack Sparrow, so stranger things have happened. That's true, but I mean, for this one, it's a supporting turn, whereas Pirates, at least, Depp was really kind of running the show for most of that. I can't remember if he got nominated for the first one or the second, but he does pretty much make those movies with his performance. Eh. Another debate for another time. <laughs> I think I think he's okay, and then the movies around him have been good, great, and horrible. And I'll leave you listeners to decide which movie I would put in which classification. You know, feature film chat for the moment. Appreciate your thoughts on Kong Skull Island, Courtney, and everyone go give a listen to See You Next Wednesday so you can get a little more of half the Changing Reels love. At the start of each episode, after a bit of conversation, we like to discuss two short films. We try and tie them as much as possible into our feature lengths, or if we've got a theme for the month. And for this month, we are doing science fiction movies. So, Courtney, I think that you picked this maybe in response to my pick last week, or I may be being too suspicious. So, why don't you tell me a bit about it? Well, my short film pick is a film called Running the Gamatar, and it's written, directed, and stars Joe Kramer. Part of it was, yes, a little bit of response to <laughs> your monster film, but it was actually, there was a trifecta, because it was last week you had picked a Japanese-inspired monster film, so I thought about that, and then also seeing Kong Skull Island, that was part of the whole monster trend but actually the i'd say the bulk of it is because we're discussing nacho vigilando's time crimes this week and nacho vigilando's latest film colossal actually opens up i believe april 7th according to imdb that's when it's coming out and i saw that film at tiff last year it was one of two monster inspired films that i saw at the festival the other one was a mexican film called the untamed which i really want to talk about whenever that comes out because that's another monster film, but similar to Colossal, it's very much a female empowerment kind of film, but Colossal plays it more for laughs. It's really a fun take on the whole kaiju monster movies where Anne Hathaway plays a woman whose life is pretty much in shambles, and she's a bit of an alcoholic, and as she's having to go back to her old childhood home and try and figure out what she's going to do with her life, across the seas, there's a monster attacking Asian country, I cannot remember, at the top of my head at this time, and there's kind of like parallels between the monster's attacks and what's going on in her life, so that was my main thinking for Gamatar, because Gamatar is a fun film about 
um, a couple, both in their 20s, that are very much self-centered, self-absorbed. And the male, Stan, who's played by the director, Joel Kramer, is getting tired of his girlfriend, June, and he wants to break up with her. But every time he tries to break up with her, there's this giant monster named Gamatar that seems to be running amok in the city. And the more Gamatar runs amok, the more Stan and June find themselves kind of stuck together, even though they don't really want to be. So that was the real reason why I chose it, because of Nacho's film. But it was also a slight response to yours from last (laughs) week, but just a more fun version, I would say. Kind of funny, because you had a muted response to my short last week, and I'm having a muted response slightly to running the Gamatar. The one thing I do appreciate, both in your pick for this week and then my short pick, which we'll get to shortly, is the use of resources and the, the creative way that they get this vision on screen. How I feel about the tone or actual execution of the vision is, of course, a separate object of conversation, which I will have some comments on. But running the Gamatar was made for, you know, just a shade over $1,700. I'm definitely a middle-class American, so watching this, almost any criticism I had could be reasonably replied with, well, why don't you go make a movie? And well, maybe I will. But that said, there's a strain of shorts that populate YouTube, populate Vimeo, that are just not my taste exactly. They tend to have a single joke or a single idea, and depending on the length, that can either be pulverized or it can work perfectly. In many cases, the shorter the better. One example of something that runs way too long that I ended up absolutely hating was Kung Fury, which was basically an an explosion of way too many special effects and visual jokes that had no rhyme or reason to it at all other than, boy, our memories of the 80s were swell, weren't they? And then on the other end of the spectrum is Deerium TV, Why Don't You Play Music Videos Anymore, which is from a a comedy duo I really love. And Gramatar Falls pretty much smack dab in the middle. I enjoyed the absurd humor going on in the background, especially (laughs) Stan's best friend, Frank, who seems to be in a case of degradating neurological capacity every time he appears on screen that hints at like a side story going on with his struggle with dealing with the side effects of the Gramatar. I also really enjoyed Joni, even though she doesn't have much in the way of dialogue because she plays the best friend role that most do in rom-coms and now that i think about it this also fits the rom-com staple of where the best friends are sometimes more interesting than the leads because that's definitely the case here but i like that Joni's response to june's complaining about stan was typically a mm-hmm yep okay I think we've all been there in relationships with friends where they're going to be making these mistakes or making the same complaints again and again and again, and you can only hear so much of that before you check out whenever they start talking that way. For the monster itself, though, it felt like an idea that wasn't really fleshed out into a part of the storytelling here. For one example of that, there's sometimes there's some uh, payoffs for jokes that don't really come, or kind of setups that end up fading into nothing. Like, when they're walking around, and there's a woman wearing a support LGBT monster rights t-shirt, that's kind of low-hanging fruit, joke-wise, but I could see that paying off if the movie actually went in a direction where the monster 
was getting into a homosexual relationship or something. But then it ends with a Miss Mister version of the monster with like a little ribbon in its non-existent hair. I did like that visual. It got a chuckle out of me. That's just an example of where the visuals from earlier in the short don't really have a good through line to some of the payoffs later on. And I'm not 100% on board with the dig at that kind of activism because it's this large lady wearing it. And again, it just goes nowhere. We have no indication that these monsters are LGBT. If I really wanted to push it, I could say that LGBT and monster probably shouldn't be next to each other in anything unless you're actually going to have an LGBT monster. So this one was a roller coaster for me, Courtney. There are things that I liked and then things that made me go, uh, and then things that I liked and then things that made me go, ooh. I'll agree with you for Frank and Joni, especially Frank, because it's funny that every time you see him, his situation just seems to be getting worse. They're at a funeral and he's in the wheelchair. And the next time you see him in the hospital and he's going through some stuff. And at the whole time, Stan is rattling off about his own problems and his problems in the grand scheme of things. And similar to how you pointed out Joni's reaction about the uh-huh, uh-huh. Stan and June's problems are minuscule when you really think of like what's going on in that world and all the stuff that the people have to deal with. But the one thing I really loved about this short was all the little background and little sight gags that happen. And even with the support LGBT monster rights, I took it more as people trying to use a particular situation to push their own agenda, whatever that agenda could be. Like that t-shirt could have been for anything, more gun control, what have you. There's always going to be that person in a time of crisis try and use that as well for whatever platform they have but the reason why i enjoy this one so much is because of the absurd humor of it but the shallowness of the characters contrasts with what's going on in that society and how the majority of the people in the backgrounds are all wounded or injured in some form or another and june can't decide whether or not she wants to go with stan who's good looking and facial features are important to her or this insurance guy who has a good job and for him stan's like she's crowding me a little too much and that whole face thing, I'm not sure I really like the fact that her face has been half burned off. Like that shallowness amped up the absurdist humor. And you touched on a bunch of stuff there that I do respect. And the joke construction around, I think that the guy's name is Mel because he, he sells life insurance. <laughs> And he started making a killing on life insurance after the monster attack started. That's some great dark humor there. And it's not overstated. It's something that's blink or let your ears fade out for a second and you'll miss it kind of joke. I really dug that. And then I also dug uh, some of the beginning aspects of June's trials and tribulations with Stan. Not only is he very subtly trying to break up with her, even her primary concern is how her uh, relationship with Stan appears to people. Not that her home just burned down and that half of her face is disfigured. That is pushing it to the absurd realm that I did enjoy in this, where it was just so out there that... I have to laugh. I, I don't really have a response otherwise. I'm still iffy on the shirt thing, if only because I was thinking about how that could have been maybe a better joke. I almost wish it said support monster gun rights. Then you could have like a huge burly dude with monster arms wearing this teeny tiny shirt. There's also the image too of supporting a monster that can breathe radiation death with gun rights. It could be one of those things where I'm deluding myself, but you saying that brought that image into my head, and then a big muscular man with literally monster gun arms wearing a teeny tiny shirt 
made me chuckle. Well, you never know. That that might make the sequel. You never know. <laughs> I, I hope so. It's a good positive note to end on. Those two jokes, especially with the life insurance and the absurdity of the burned down, burned face, but I'm still going to focus on how our relationship looks instead of how it is. Those were good jokes, and they managed to pull a lot of kind of zany filmmaking out of a $1,700 budget. So what my cup of tea? But this is something I would still recommend to people if I know their sense of humor. Good work, just not my thing. I understand, but I completely see your side of things. It worked for me. Simple things like Joni and June discussing the relationship while trying on hazmat suits got good hearty laughs out of me. The ending, when they kind of do that movie trailer style from the 50s, you know, you'll see action romance, and that didn't quite work. But by the time we got to the end, I was completely sold into it. So, But for your short this week, you went a little more serious, a little more highbrow. I don't know if I'd go highbrow exactly, because I was thinking more overlooked. I'm not entirely sure there's a huge market out there for podcasts that happen to discuss silent shorts from the 1900s, early 1900s, I should say. It's from Edison Studios in 1910, directed by J. Searle Dawley, and it is a liberal adaptation of Frankenstein, and I actually love the audience acknowledgement there that what you're going to see is not really an adaptation of Frankenstein proper. It's kind of taking some of the ideas of Frankenstein and applying it to what is now a very new medium. So there is the standard warning I would have with a lot of movies from the early silent period. A lot of them are still amazing. Some folks got the grasp of visual grammar early on and made just beautiful stuff start to finish. Frankenstein 1910 is half of that. And one of the reasons I picked it is because, first of all, Frankenstein, you know, the story is, for some groups, considered to be a birthing place for science fiction in terms of literature. And this is both a a combination science fiction horror film that doesn't go into like the the fantastical realm like Journey to the Moon did. This, This stays a bit more grounded, and it features a magnificent example of very early special effects when the monster is being created by Dr. Frankenstein. So this is one of those shorts that I picked with the foreknowledge that Only half of it is really awesome, and then the other half is kind of better for a historical glance at how movies have developed over the years and how kind of film grammar emerged. The moment when Frankenstein's monster is created, you could see influences from that on Hellraiser, Terminator, and heck, even Sam Raimi's works like the Sandman coming together in the third Spider-Man movie. It has this very creepy, intaking life vibe. And in the background, I know that you can get that by burning something down or melting something and then playing the film backwards. To see this early confidence of the structure of the monster just coming together like layers of trash before becoming like this molten thing on the inside with the skeletal limbs gangling out. It's just a fantastic moment that 
still works because of the, um, the technique behind it, the reverse running the film. And so that's one thing that I love about it, uh, with the admission that, again, that it's not entirely great. But what do you think? It was my first time in encountering it, and I enjoyed it. It was it was more, I think, for the historical aspect of it, like the the creation scene that you just talked about. My mind instantly went to T two uh, or just any of the Terminator films with that same imagery, similar to you. And I thought that was a great moment. What really struck me about this film, though, was the fully realized version of the monster and how we're so used to kind of seeing like the the Bolt version, or I guess the De Niro half-human scarred-up monster. And this one, it looked almost like a caveman, but the amount of empathy that, even though it's you know silent film, that you still get from the actor. And there was times where it felt like the monster and Frankenstein were having like, legitimate conversations. And I know that may seem far-fetched, but just the way how the film was shot, it, it, it looked like there was times where they were having like serious discourse. And I thought that was kind of interesting. That was a nice little angle to take. Yeah, the relationship between the two is really cool. They hint at its otherworldly size in cool, tiny ways. Like, I'm sure that there is some kind of video essay or writing on there on silent film period actors and acting with their fingers. Because what was really cool about Frankenstein's monster was how the gangly limbs of its creation looked like it had these bone-jutted hooks for hands that were long and very gaunt. And that signaled in with the appearance of the monster itself. It looked hollow, barely formed. And since the monster was also kind of hunched over any time it was on screen, it was more effective the first time around when the monster came to, I guess, try and wake up Dr. Frankenstein and say, hey, daddy, I'm alive. It made this really creepy impression when you talk about the two being in conversation, I think that it switches to a, a nice metaphorical realm with the film grammar toward the end when Frankenstein's monster is tracked down Dr. Frankenstein before Dr. Frankenstein's wedding. And the monster it doesn't quite confront him exactly. Like, there's not a conflict. He's just kind of hovering around. And then there's a great little sequence with Dr. Frankenstein and the monster where the monster comes into the living room and it looks at itself in a mirror. But it almost looks like they're doing that old Marx Brothers thing where the two brothers are looking at each other through an empty wooden frame. Then the monster is cut out of the frame on the left so that we're still looking at the monster in the reflection. And then Dr. Frankenstein comes in to see himself as the monster in the reflection. That is the kind of visual metaphor that, depending on the movie, would be perfectly executed in terms of big emotions or maybe be way too on the nose. But because of the limitations of the technology and the sudden cut that necessitates the monster on the non-reflected side being removed, it did add to that in-dialogue feel that you've got, even though we don't really have dialogue, of the monster and Dr. Frankenstein coexisting with each other in a way. I wish that there was a little more interaction with the female lead. I believe the character was Elizabeth from that story. When she comes in, the monsters, if he's around, he's usually hiding. Like there's that same sequence um, by the mirror where it ends off like him hiding behind the curtains whenever she's around in the room and you get the one moment where she faints. But I, I kind of wish that, and I understand completely due to the time that this film was made, that she's not really much of a character. She's just there to be the object of desire. But that's one thing I kind of wish, that they had spent a little more time focusing on her or even her relationship with Frankenstein. I th would have been a little more interesting. I almost wish I could bring another 
special guest on here just for this short. My old writing partner, Danny Reed, he runs the website precode.com, and he's had great success with that. I love Danny. He's been one of my best friends for well over a decade now. So I may have to shoot him a tweet to maybe chime in his thoughts on 1910's Frankenstein because I was initially going to say, yeah, Courtney, there's that good old-fashioned 1910's sexism. And while I know it's there, I'm not really an expert on the subject, so maybe I'll get Danny to weigh in, see what he thinks about that moment short as a whole. I completely understand the era it's filmed in. It's just one of those things where even just a few more scenes with her and Frankenstein interacting just to give a little more weight to their relationship, and which would also add weight to the monster's reaction to her. But it's the time period that we're working with, so there's not really much you can do. Working with the limitations of its time, I like it. It's an interesting thing. And but definitely check both of these out. We're going to be, of course, as per the norm, including links for the shorts in our episode descriptions. We're also going to tweet them out and put them on Facebook. So hopefully, if you're already following us, you have had a chance to watch them. For the moment, we are going to take a break to change a couple reels. And then we're going to be back with Nacho Vigalandos's Time Crimes. So see you in a moment, folks. Welcome back to Changing Reels, everyone. This week, capping off our month of science fiction movies, we have Nacho Vigalando's 2007 film Time Crimes. It features a unusually slimy protagonist in a sequence of events involving time travel, voyeurism, inflicted violence, and a host of other grody mishaps that occur to this man Partly of his own devising, partly of fate, but almost always entertaining with a genius streak of dark comedy throughout. Courtney, this was my first time with Time Crimes, and why did you pick this one? This actually was my first time with the film as well. The reason why I picked it was partly because I'd heard about this film for several years now, especially here in Toronto. It was one of those films where amongst a lot of the film-loving community, people, when you talk about science fiction and time travel, everyone's like, have you seen time crimes? Have you seen time crimes? And when I was at TIFF recently, as I mentioned in the first segment, I saw Colossal. Well, I guess a few weeks later, I was listening to one of the prominent award podcasts, and they were talking about the Toronto Film Festival. They were doing a recap, and then they were talking about films that are playing Toronto that are going to be playing other festivals. And they made reference to Nacho Vigalando in terms of him being a first-time director, right? Like this new director on the scene. And I was like, well, that's not right, because... I've heard about Time Crimes Forever. I guess my first encounter with him was 2014's Open Windows, which stars Elijah Wood and Sasha Gray. The whole film revolves around computer screens and laptop windows, and he constructed this entire thriller about this fan played by um, Elijah Wood. I guess he was supposed to like win a date, if I remember correctly, with his favorite movie star played by Sasha Gray, and something happened where she nixed the date, and through the internet, someone gives... Elijah with the opportunity to to spy on Sasha Gray's character. And then it turns into almost like a phone booth style thriller where Elijah Wood has to keep his webcam open while he's doing these series of things and trying to find out who kidnapped Sasha Gray and all this craziness. I didn't think the film itself worked, but the premise was intriguing enough that I went looking into a little more of uh, Vigalando's other works. And I, I caught up with ABCs of Death because he did the first one, I think, A for Apocalypse, which was another dark, humorous look about a wife who, I believe it was a wife, who was trying to kill her husband. You find out the reason why is that she was 
trying to do it for over the course of a year. With the apocalypse coming, she realized that she was running out of time, so she had to speed up the process. It was that dark humor that captured me. And I said, well, since we were doing this show, and I've always wanted to see time crimes, no better month and when we're discussing sci-fi to dig into this film and for my first experience with it i absolutely loved it i thought it was a genius premise time travel films can always be very hit or miss especially when you start getting into the loops of time and how do you explain that i loved in your intro how you said that a lot of this was the device of the protagonist's own making and I think that's what makes this film so special. You're feeling sorry for a guy who, at the beginning, is Letra's husband, who's spying on some nubile young woman in the woods, and then he becomes a, a victim on the run. But then as the film unfolds, you don't really feel that sorry for him, and you're more interested in terms of how is he going to try and break this vicious cycle that he seems to be stuck on. And we could do a deep dive into how Nacho Vigalondo has a talent for exposing toxic masculinity, because in a movie I otherwise hated, he directed a pretty effective short in VHS viral Parallel Monsters, which, while the premise itself and kind of the way it went about wasn't too unique, it still had a great visceral impact with some of the reveals and then asking, of course, who the monster really is. But with Time Crimes, I just want to kind of keep a surface-level sense approach to it for now because the protagonist is so slimy i did not have a good feeling about him from the very beginning because it takes a very specific kind of entitled person to tell his wife that the phone is ringing when she is working outside and he is inside just a few steps away from the phone I mean, sure, he's lounging around in his boxers, but they're pretty much alone out there. And I loved how the construction of Time Crimes and then the screenplay, which was also written by Nacho Vigalando, ended up basically being a story that if you remove the time crime elements, it's something that like the Coen brothers in their early thriller days would do, or noir, where because of a man's toxic libido and leering nature, he ends up doing more damage to himself and others, trying to fix it instead of just admitting embarrassment or apologizing to his wife. The actor who plays Hector, Cara Elahalde, he's like a Spanish Philip Seymour Hoffman. Philip Seymour Hoffman had this talent of getting into the mindsets of obsessive, dirty individuals so magnificently. Even when he was in a bad movie like Along Came Polly, he mined the slime and distaste for perfect laughs. It got to the point where I realized that Hector was not going to have a redemptive moment. So I just started laughing at Hector. His ability to screw up literally anything he tries to do is kind of epic for the small stakes that are involved with time crimes. The dude can't even sit down properly on a branch without falling. He can't climb a fence without falling. And in one of my favorite little sequences, I had to rewind and time this out perfectly, but he's a dude who can't even sprint for 10 seconds before he falls over and has to get someone to help him. He is such a unique protagonist without any kind of redemptive qualities, but because he's so bumbling and terrible at dealing with his own vices, I got the easy sense 
that Nacho Vigalondo, who also has a role in the movie as the director... Oh, you mean the, the scientist? Yeah, as the scientist. Yeah. And that's the thing. I say director because, for all we know, he's the director of this project. So it almost seemed like a Jean-Luc Godard situation, where the director inserts himself as a commentary on the process of movie making. And it kind of seemed that way at first, but in the long run, it was actually just this director haplessly standing by, scientist, director, whatever. I'm just going to go ahead and for ease of sake say that he was the director of this time travel project. Standing aside and letting his creation run amok. Now, there's a lot, of course, technique that I love with the camera in setting up those jokes, especially the way that he frames empty space uses expectation to deadpan effect but the protagonist and the actor that was some top shelf writing and acting the writing in particular struck me because as you're watching hector go about his day and try and make things right and as you said because of his bumbling nature he only proceeds to make it worse you quickly start to realize that there's no wasted moments in this film the film opens with Hector coming home and the contents of his trunk have all fallen out on the driveway, almost like a trail or a, if you were to, lost in the woods, a little road map. And it felt like Nacho was setting up things to come. Every time we start to go through and we got a little more and more information, then you see from another angle and that provides even a few more breadcrumbs, right? And it, it gives you a different perspective of Hector and when he's first going in the woods looking for this young, potentially naked woman, he sees a man with red bandages and then you start to get explanation for the bandages and then you understand why the person with the bandages later on is looking at Hector a particular way almost like with goggles there's always a little more explanation there's nothing in the film that's just there because it's cool or might be amusing even the jokes serve a purpose in this film and I thought the writing was fantastic I didn't see it initially as here's this bumbling fella, and that's what the rest of the film establishes, that he's a lecherous idiot, basically. But I liked how that opening segment ended up tying into the tension of domestic instability. They're moving into this house, so that means a lot of things are wrapped, a lot of things are sealed, everything is kind of in its place, but you know it's not naturally there yet because it's still undercover. It reminded me in a very weird way of Fireworks Wednesday, and how Fireworks Wednesday hinted at the domestic strife inside it by having this married couple who isn't unpacking, everything is staying concealed because of the tensions in their relationship. And it also didn't hurt that most of those items were flammable. So I kept anticipating a fire that never quite came. And I think the only reason that he just didn't decide to, I don't know, burn the time machine down or break it so he would stop screwing himself up was because he was so incompetent at everything he tried to do. That edges into how Nacho Vigalando works the thriller elements into it. Overall, I'd say Time Crimes is a really effective dark comedy. But the thriller edge can't be ignored, especially when we get into how voyeuristic Hector is, his unwillingness to let things go. So those combustible elements that we see at the very beginning, they may not play off like we expect, but they're there to keep our tension on edge, to wonder what's going to be around the corner. And <laughs> what happens to be around the corner of Hector is Hector and his horrible morality. I loved the way Nacho Vigalando set up Hector to keep expecting an answer to appear out of nowhere, almost for him to show up and explain to himself 
stop, man. Stop doing this. Because there's a lot of empty space, and it's especially tense when Hector goes back in time the first time, and in the movie we find that out as Hector 2, that Hector 2, with his mask, his pink bloodied bandages, starts ordering around this woman who's trying to help. The empty spaces as the sounds and the off-screen actions are happening as she undresses or he threatens her or he hears the scream. It's like we're anticipating something to fill these frames. Hector thinks that he's going to have a solution to his problems that he's just going to stumble on or happen to find in a field. And the camera is just on Hector. There's no magical solution that's going to come into the frame. Anything that does come into frame is something that either annoys Hector or he accidentally destroys. In an early scene with the telephone in the lab, it gives Hector a nanosecond of sitting there and being patient, only to pan slowly to the side and reveal the telephone that Hector knows he has to call. But he doesn't really have to, He's just impulsive, and that ends up, of course, leading into the chain of events that gets him stabbing himself, among other things. I really liked how Nacho Vigalondo didn't give us any kind of obvious payoffs with the visuals. We're always waiting along with Hector for some magical solution, but he's the one to blame. And I like that throughout this whole thing, when Hector 2 first emerges from the time travel device and the scientist is telling him basically, okay, just wait here. Eventually things will happen. And as as long as we get rid of Hector 1, everything will be okay. But Hector, even though this situation is completely foreign to him, figures that he can kind of orchestrate everything. There's one moment where he, I felt like he was going to just break down in tears because everything is going wrong. And no matter how much he tries to recreate the situation, it's just making things so much worse. But it's that arrogance that he has. And then he starts to realize that his arrogance is actually going to cause potential problems for his wife. And that causes him to take a different course of action, which screws things up even further. And I love that... Throughout the entire time, because you're dealing with time travel and you're seeing him go from one point to the other, Nacho Vigalando is always giving you hints and clues that there's other points in this timeline that Hector is not seeing. We as the audience are getting these little hints and we can clearly see that, well, in this situation, if you're calling yourself, who called you the first time? Maybe you might not be the only two versions out there. Things like that I thought were really well done, especially in terms of how Vigalando stretches it out, but makes it still plausible and entertaining so that when certain reveals happen, you're still on the edge of your seat watching the action fall out, knowing full well that there's probably some other actions on that timeline that we haven't encountered yet. When we talk about problems yielding problems, yielding more stumbling from Hector, the stuff with his wife was legit unsettling. I talked at the very beginning about how it takes a certain kind of person to order your wife back inside the house when she's the one working. In the grand scheme of things, what he did was orchestrate the murder of a woman so that his wife wouldn't find out that he was ogling boobs. That is one of the most base motivations anyone could have. I guess I'm going to bring Godard back into it again, because it's like, you know, it's a girl and sex and some action. Now, I know that his definition was like uh, a, a girl, a boy, and a gun, but it's still the conflict here is a man dealing with a girl. In this case, he wants to save face for his wife. It goes about a very painful way of doing it that saves face for his wife. 
it left me wondering what's going to happen after all this, because one of the most heartbreaking shots that keeps in with the tension is when the girl is sitting there and she's trusting this bloodied guy, who she doesn't know is the masked man following her. There's this look of, oh god, I get it now, on her face, and this is Hector 3 at this point, when he's calmly cutting her hair and giving her his wife's coat. I don't want to go too far with the comparisons here to great directors, but there's something Hitchcockian about that, where you've got a case of mistaken identity and these crimes that build in on themselves because of simple guilt. When you work in, of course, the thriller and dark comedy aspects of it, too, then you've got a recipe for, I guess, a Hitchcockian dark comedy. So maybe that comparison's warranted here. I don't know. No, I I think so, because the simple guilt is what drives everything in this film. Because of him leering at this girl and causing this whole time travel thing, he's now trying to figure out how to solve it so that his wife doesn't find out. And also, the scientist, in theory, doesn't want his people finding out about this. And guilt is orchestrating everything. So even when he first meets that girl, and he's like, okay, I'm not going to hurt you, but I need you to undress and do exactly (laughs) as I say. Trust me, I'm a good person. I might be all bandaged up but just do this for me because i need to lure this other person which you don't even know about into the woods trust me trust me trust me and then things happen with that girl and there's guilt about that and then he's trying to figure out okay now i've got to deal with my other version plus i've got to deal with this girl here because i don't want people finding out the guilt is is every step of the way and just causing the action so when you talk about that scene with the red coat for me that was sinister too because of hector's reaction and the look on his face when he puts it together he's like ah this is what i must do now right and at the and at that point he's already ordered his wife to hide in the shed against her will he's thinking he's got everything under control which sets up one of my favorite moments when he towards the end where he's he and his wife are sitting on the lawn chairs and he's like don't worry we have some time because he knows no matter how much he tries, he can't figure out how to stop this thing. I guess with that out of the way, because obviously this movie has tons of strengths in the, in the performances and then the joke payoff and the plot payoff and the thriller elements. But what do you think about Nacho Vigalando casting himself in this? Because there's this temptation, and I, I do think it's justified, to always read a director's self-casting involvement as some kind of commentary on the creative process itself. With Hector running amok, literally the director's own inclinations creatively have gotten a mind of their own and are driving everything. But then I also think about the moment when Hector is getting some coffee, when what we eventually find out is his morning coffee. And it was just that little detail of them emerging from the lab and then the director having to put money in a machine in order to get coffee. The only way you can let your ideas run free is if you have some kind of funding. I don't want to dive too deep into time crimes just because it works on such that purely pleasurable thriller level but it's those little details that make me think Vigalando is smart he's not using himself in the way that other directors have like say M. Night Shyamalan or go back to Hitchcock Hitchcock but it's still funny and it's got this weird corporatist threat to it that Hector is eventually able to work to his advantage because of the guilt he wants to place on the scientist that's funny because I did not 
delve that deep into Vigolando's appearance, especially with the corporate aspect that you were just mentioning. I didn't mind that he was in it. His performance was never distracting from the events that was unfolding. And I like the fact that he, in theory, cast himself as the villain, although the more you watch it, you realize the main villain is the protagonist. So I thought that that was smart on his part. He's like, yeah, my character's bad, but not as bad as this guy. In general, from the three features and one short of his that I've seen, he's definitely a very smart director, even with something like Open Windows, which I didn't like. I still walked away going, that's an interesting attempt with that type of premise. It didn't work, but the fact that his mind can go to those places, and if you look at these films as they're listed on IMDb, they're not just one simple thing. IMDb listed um, Time Crimes as a horror, mystery, sci-fi, but it's also a, a dark comedy. Every one of his films, you could put two or three different genres. He blends them in such a way that always feels unique and interesting. Colosso is a monster film. It's a comedy. It's a drama. It's much about female empowerment as it is monsters attacking Asia. But it's done in such a fun, unique way that as a director, he's inventive. And in this film, again, his performance was fine. I didn't mind that he was in it. And I don't have any beef with his performance. I guess when I was asking, I was just curious about your thoughts. But on the positives of Vigilando's performance as the scientist slash, I'm going to still call him director of the facility, I love that he plays a deadpan, helpless, knowledgeable person watching this psycho dig further into his own crimes. He's not powerless to stop it, but it almost seemed like at times it was a scientist letting a minion dictate the supervillain plan and resigning himself to all of the badness that follows because he doesn't want his bosses to yell at him. And really, this is a sign that the experiment was a success. They shouldn't be yelling at him. I'm not really. Yeah, but it, it is an experiment that you shouldn't have been doing in the first place. Even if you start to think about all the events as they're unfolding, every time that machine is used, his... I guess he's younger self, because I, I, I really like that they don't go too far back in time. It's, what, maybe an hour and a half? Whatever the time length is, it isn't that long. It's not like they went four years in the past. Every version of himself still kind of knows what's going on. And at the same time, he also would know then the, the multiple versions, because they're all going to, at some point, converge at different aspects for him. So I thought that was kind of That was the one thing where, by the time I got to the end, I thought I pretty much had everything figured out. And I was like, wait, what? So I had to put it back in again just to <laughs> verify it. I, the scientist's role in all of this, in terms of how much he knows throughout the course of the day, I'm still figuring out, but I love that that's a little added mystery for me to just chew on. Yeah, this one was fantastic. Yeah, and in the spirit of Time Crimes, it being a tight 90 minutes, that note of positivity from the both of us and just being in love with this dark comedy is a good note to end on. Maybe someone out there wants to chime in with their own theories on some of the images behind Time Crimes, but otherwise, thank you for joining us on this Time Crimes discussion. Courtney, how can folks reach out to you? They can reach me at the Twitter account for us, at ChangingReelsAC, or you can reach me at SmallMind on Twitter. For myself, I continue to monitor the Gmail account, so shoot us a message there if you feel so inclined. It's changing.reels.ac at gmail.com. You can, of course, reach me at Can't Stop Drew, and you can search Changing Reels on Twitter, Facebook, and heck, even Google's starting to get us up there. So give us a search 
follow along, and if you have suggestions or just thoughts you want to share, hit us up. As usual, thank you to all our listeners. And I also want to give a shout-out to a few that we've had in the last couple of weeks, those who are listening to us in the Russian Federation, Denmark, Oman. I didn't realize we were reaching Saudi Arabia, but hey, great. Japan, Sweden, and Barbados. Thank you all for listening, and go on your various iTunes and give us a rating. We love our international community, much like we love our domestic community. So, for Changing Reels, I'm Andrew Hathaway. And I'm Courtney Small. And we'll see you next time. This has been a presentation of the Modern Superior Media Network. 